on the one hand, the institution of planning is immensely powerful and important, while on the other hand, individual planners have almost no leeway in what they can do, and even the institutions are subordinate to real estate capital. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Samuel Stein, geographer and housing policy analyst. Samuel joins us today to discuss his book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. Samuel, welcome. Thanks so much, Charles. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, it's an important book. Uh, congratulations on having it uh, in the world. Um, uh, the, the beginning of the book, the, the, the first um, chapter, begins with this account of the emergence of what you're calling, what you're formulating as the, the real estate uh, state. Um, and I, I want you to just begin by defining that, that formulation for our listeners. Sure. It, it's meant to be thought of in the way um, we often talk about uh, the blank state. So we talk about the welfare state, we talk about the carceral state. And when we do, we're usually talking about um, an element of the state that is rising or falling in power. Um, the entire state is not a welfare state. The entire state is not a carceral state. Um, but at different times, those things have had greater and lesser significance. And I'm arguing that the real estate state is similarly a thing that's always been there, um, really as long as there's been private property and, and modern states, um, but that it has a greater consequence now than maybe ever before. And what I mean by the real estate state is the elements of government that is aligned with corporate real estate interests toward the goal of elevating the sale and, and price of real estate and mostly housing within a given territory. So um, this comprises all sorts of um, elements of the state, municipal, state, federal, arguably in some senses international, um, but it's an amalgam of them with real estate capital. Uh, and in certain interesting ways, also uh, elements of labor and, and popular movements as well um, that are interested in, in seeing rising property values. So it's, it's a way of bending the power of the state, the, the mechanisms of the state toward the goal of raising real estate values. It's clear in your account um, that the the origins are plural and you know long durée. That it's been it's as you say been with us as long as private property, uh, and by state, of course, you mean to refer to a range of plural actors, both the, the public sector, but also financial instruments and markets and a whole range of other forms. Um, what, what what struck me about that opening section of the book was the extent to which you describe, on the one hand, the financialization of all things, the financialization in particular of housing, and the notion of um, a political economy that uh, really has come to uh, reinforce that tendency in which housing has become a commodity. And it, it struck me in a way, it was kind of it parallels in some ways accounts of how uh, everything has been essentially financialized through um, through equity markets, you know, that, that we're all now, even if it, I work in the not-for-profit educational s sector, 
in spite of that, you know, my pension is all, it's it's through a certain financial model, right? So to the extent we're all now implicated in a way, I thought that the opening chapter of the book did an excellent job of describing that. I'm interested in particular in both your um, background and experience and your account of the role of public sector planners in that political economy. Uh, Now, the book is, of course, it covers a wide uh, array of geographies and different case studies, but has a primary focus. You return to New York City uh, time and again with a of case studies in part based on your experience and proximity to the city. But equally, you make a claim um, that while New York may be exceptional in certain ways, it also reveals, makes legible certain conditions that you can find in Pittsburgh or Detroit or almost any American city. What do you see as the role of planners in that real estate state today in a city like New York? Well, um, planners are tasked with a kind of contradictory set of goals. On the one hand, they're supposed to make space better for everyday people. They're supposed to make it, um, you know, more rational uh, distribution rather than just sort of the chaos of whatever the market does. Um, They're supposed to make it easier for people to move about, to find spaces to uh, live in, work in, relax in, uh, make it environmentally sustainable and beautiful and the like. But they're also charged with making sure the city is Uh, bringing in enough revenue, primarily through the mechanism of the property tax, to keep all those systems running. And so urban planners, um, idealistic though we often are, are tasked with making the city more profitable at the same time as they're supposedly tasked with making it more equitable. And those two things are not just in tension, but in fundamental contradiction with one another. And that's why at one point I say it's a hard position to be put in, especially if you care about what you're doing. And do you have a sense of um, the extent to which uh, planners, you know, maybe your, your colleagues, friends who are in that line of work, who you know, have they internalized that contradiction? You, this is not just an, ac- an academic or kind of you know, observational you know, account. It's, it's something that's personal and lived, it seems, in your, in your explanation. It is. I mean, it's impossible not to internalize the conditions of our laboring, whatever they are. And uh, and planners are no exception to that. I think um, I made a point in the the final chapter, which looks at, you know, how things could be different of talking with planners about how they see things, what possibilities they see, because the the planners are more alive to this contradiction than anybody. Um, They have to live it every day. And so, you know, they also have ideas about how things could be different and what could make it so. So uh, while on the one hand, I think, yes, they have internalized these contradictions, they're also harder to look away from than anybody else. The sort of abstract um, policymaker uh, or or theorist of policy might be able to imagine that these circles can be squared a lot easier than the people who are tasked with actually doing that. Yeah, one thing that is a thread, uh, I think, throughout you know many sections of the book that struck struck me as, um, uh, as as compelling here, is the extent to which you know planners are are you know on the one hand perceived as you know wielding extraordinary power, and of course you know the ability to intervene in zoning or land use policy or tax structures. Of course, there is you know, enormous you know enormous responsibility there, and and vast and sweeping changes are possible. At the same moment, your account describes planners in a city like New York as occupying a relatively weak position in a political economy in which 
across across the political spectrum, you know, by definition, the political economy is that um, the overwhelming majority of um, you know private uh, donations for political campaigns come from the real estate industry, right? So in that in that political economy, uh, you you frame planning less as the kind of optimistic or utopian image of the 20th century, or maybe even less as the kind of the referee that we've come to understand the planner as a kind of fair broker between, on the one hand, you know, populations being protected from capital and capital and its desires, you know, that that's a common imaginary I think many people have about planning. You're providing us with this third image in which the planners are really, you know, expected to wield great power and authority, uh, viewed with uh, suspicion, uh, if not contempt, in many communities, and at the same moment are really instruments of the redistribution of capital through the financialization of housing. Yeah, I think you actually put that clearer than I did in the book. I think it's it's an underlying theme that I, I think I probably could have explored more directly. That on the one hand, the institution of planning is immensely powerful and important toward the realization of historic amounts of profit from land, while on the other hand, individual planners have almost no leeway in what they can do, um, and even the institutions are subordinate to real estate capital. So, you know, the, the Department of City Planning in New York can't exactly go its own way, not only from the mayor, but uh, from the real estate industry. And so I, I have had um, planners come to me after reading the book and say, like, you know, we're not actually that powerful. Uh, most of what I do is like approve parking permits for, for new construction. And, and I think that's real, but I also know that, um, you know, the kinds of sweeping changes we've seen to my city of New York and many others over the years don't happen without the, institute, the public institutions of planning playing a major role. Even sometimes if that role is backing down and letting developers do whatever the hell they want. I mean, one of the um, primary arguments that you make, uh, primary claims, uh, is that uh, rather than understanding gentrification as some kind of mysterious, um, you know, uh, outcome or some kind of, you know, bug or, uh, you know, undesirable affect that it in fact is a a feature of the system. Uh, And I want to draw you out on that. I mean, I think particularly in, in chapter two, planning gentrification, you present a picture in which, you know, um, not only is planning organized through this political economy that you've described, but equally um, gentrification is both a byproduct, but also a necessary uh, causal agent, right? And, and, and you describe, I think, very clearly how if, in fact, um, you know, uh, new, new development succeeds, it tends to accelerate gentrification, exacerbate economic inequity, uh, and therefore displacement, um, and does so, you know, particularly around along racial lines. At the same time, if a, a particular development fails, those you know risks tend to then be socialized. Uh, services are withdrawn, austerity is 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 imposed, etc. And so, uh, could you describe for our audience uh, how is it that gentrification we might understand as something that's a necessary uh, instrument of this process? I think it's useful to go back um, to some of the public documents, debates, um, op-eds, and things like that that were populating around the time that the word gentrification was becoming popularized. Um, so the, the term comes from England in the 1960s. Uh, Ruth Glass, the sociologist, uses it first. And then um, in the American context, it, it starts to be used mostly in the 70s as um, in New York City, uh, brownstone neighborhoods, for example, loft districts like Soho, 
um, are coming to be repurposed uh, for higher end users. And there's sort of a revalorization, both in terms of desire and uh, economic value in old architecture. Later on, it comes to encompass more new development, but at first that's what it's about. And so it's, it's worthwhile to look at how people were talking about gentrification at the time. Um, and so if you look at like William White, um, who is a, a New York City planner who's most famous for his um, kind of whimsical critiques of the privately owned public space program and ideas about how people use public space. He was also writing in defense of gentrification at the same time as a great way of um, kind of letting people go where they want to go, letting money go where they want to go, uh, and not relying on big government power to um, create a master plan and build large-scale social housing and things like that, uh, that this was a more economically viable option for cities. They don't have to outlay a ton of capital. Um, they don't have to do large-scale urban renewal, which can be extremely disruptive to people and urban ecosystems. Um, and that they can just give away sort of like tax credits and other things to would-be buyers of these properties who will then evict low-income tenants and turn uh, multifamily, small-scale rental buildings into single-family homes. And they thought this was great. Um, in the book, I quote, from a passage in, in Sharon Zukin's Loft Living about the Soho area, um, where somebody's talking about a, a public hearing that was happening at a, at a city planning meeting. And it starts off with poor tenants coming in from the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of the Bronx, complaining about slumlords, um, high rents and terrible conditions, rats. Um, and the board members kind of sit through it, thank the testifiers and move on. And then when it's time to talk about Soho and artists revitalizing loft buildings, they bring out these uh, clean lights and TV cameras. And suddenly the planning commissioners are all excited about the opportunity of uh, middle-class artists taking over these industrial sites. So this was not seen as um, a problem. This was not seen as a uh, unfortunate consequence of human progress. This was seen as uh, a definitive planning strategy for the city um, in order to you know, move away from dealing with the problems of uh, entrenched landlord-tenant conflicts and toward this model where in their imagination, um, middle-class homeowners kind of come back and save the city. So I go through all that to say um, the idea that gentrification is an unfortunate byproduct of the progress of cities is a much more contemporary idea than it was the idea as these things were happening. Now we talk about the problem and a very real problem that as cities get to be healthier, more beautiful, more stable, uh, house more people, they tend to also usher in the kind of investment capital that displaces large numbers of lower income workers uh, and we need to come up with solutions so that we can not have the false choice of we're going to live in poor conditions and not be gentrified, or we can improve things and suffer gentrification, and also not find some sort of false middle where um, we do gentrification, 
but we somehow generate enough revenue from that that we deal with the problems of gentrification and instead come up with a much more public-spirited solution to what uh, public investment can look like and the protection of our people can look like. Well, that historical account, you know, brownstoning and loft living in the 60s and 70s and including the 70s in response to the kind of financial crisis in American cities, I think you, you know, you, you, you paint a very clear picture. Um, you go uh, as, as recently as the Bloomberg administration and quote Amanda Burden with respect to the the, the problem of gentrification, you know, just as, as if it was, you know, somehow um, unexpected, I think. Um, I'm interested in um, the th thread in the book in which you're often um, implying, and I want to draw out on this and correct me if I get this wrong, uh, rather than, you know, planning practice, which tends to want to paper over uh, diminish, um, uh, render technical somehow class conflict. Uh, often I hear you, you know, subtextually and, and in the final chapter on making the real estate state more explicitly calling for, in fact, um, making more visible or escalating that conflict and making it legible. So first of all, am I, am I reading you correctly? And second of all, what, um, what benefit might there be in making more visible or more contentious those kinds of class conflicts? You're absolutely reading it right. I do believe that planning is an inherently conflictual process as well as one that involves some degree of, of consensus. Um, and if we pretend that that's not the case, we're lying to ourselves and others. If we pretend that there is a single solution that benefits everybody equally, if we pretend that the history of planning has not been one of um, encroachment uh, into the public good, um, as well as experiments in expanding the public sphere, then we're lying to ourselves and we're lying to others. Um, in terms of sharpening those contradictions, I think that the communities where large scale um, urban planning interventions have been made often see this stuff very clearly. They know that they're being uh, talked to rather than heard from, they know that um, similar plans like they've seen like this before have resulted in the displacement of their friends and families in previous iterations. Uh, and that breeds not just distrust, but a, a certain kind of um, earned cynicism. And I think it's false, disrespectful, Pollyannish to will that away and to say, uh, you know, I know you remember everything that happened before, but uh, you know, the new boss is different than the old boss. And so, yeah, I do believe in conflict as a major starting point and, and continuing point in, uh, in planning. And I, I referenced a, I forget exactly what it's called, but something like the Institute of Conflictual Planning uh, in Brazil, which is taking this on as, as part of their pedagogy, that uh, planning involves conflict and which side are you on? Um, I come out of the labor movement, and, and that's a slogan and a song that gets brought up um, a lot. Which side are you on? And then I moved into the planning world where suddenly we were sometimes encouraged to believe that there were no sides and that uh, the goal was to um, hear from everybody and come up with a solution that, that everybody can uh, equally live with. And I think that that's just not the way that the world works, certainly under capitalism. Uh, and the more planners can see that and declare which side they're on, the better. Speaking of new and different bosses, um, one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was the, um, the 
case studies of the Bloomberg and de Blasio administrations. And on the on the face of it, you know, um, two you know utterly you know different uh, different uh, arguments about how to, how to organize ourselves. But ultimately, your claim is that you know both uh, both administrations you know, continued and reinforced this notion of the financialization of housing, um, and that ultimately simply building more housing didn't seem to in either administration uh, really um, address the kind of economic equity or slow down gentrification. In fact, quite the opposite. Explain to us how it is that, you know, Bloomberg's, you know, Manhattan as a luxury commodity and de Blasio's, you know, self-proclaimed kind of progressive reform, how do those things end up with similar political economy with respect to housing? Right. Um, and for the the uninitiated, the those who haven't been following New York City politics for a while, just to, to quickly review who these two figures are. Um, Michael Bloomberg is a billionaire who comes out of the finance and financial media sectors. Um, he had never run for office uh, before and then ran and won as New York City mayor 2001. Um, he temporarily got rid of term limits to serve three terms in New York City. Um, and he was a former Democrat who became a Republican to run for uh, New York City mayor and won that way and then became an independent later on. So um, all over the political party spectrum, but um, I think a self-described neoliberal technocrat uh, and fairly proud of that. Bill de Blasio um, came up through the kind of reformed democratic party, um, had the backing of the Working Families Party, was involved in starting a precursor to the Working Families Party, I think called the New Party or something like that. It didn't last very long. Um, anyway, an established figure in liberal New York City politics, ran um, after uh, Mayor Bloomberg's third term with the slogan uh, that New York City was a tale of two cities, one for the rich and one for the poor, and uh, sought various kinds of redistributive um, policies. And he won with a, with a pretty large majority, um, both in the Democratic primary, uh, where he, he beat out all the challengers, and then overwhelmingly in the general election. And my, my argument, as you said, is not that there's no difference between these two figures and their administrations and policy agendas, but rather that when you look at um, planning and development, there's continuity despite all that change. If you focus on other sectors, um, there's quite a bit of difference, even within housing. For example, how they um, appointed members to the rent guidelines board, which sets how much rents are gonna change for half the city's population. Under Bloomberg, they went out a lot. Under de Blasio, several years, they were frozen. So even within the realm of housing, there was a significant difference. But planning and development is where you saw a lot of overlap. Both of them sought uh, to rezone as a major means of channeling development in the ways that they wanted start with the Bloomberg administration, um, rezoned about a third of the city through hundreds of individual rezoning actions. And because there are so many different rezoning actions, it's hard to say exactly what the, the plan was. The plan was the no plan, um, neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street. And that kind of divide and conquer thing really worked well for Bloomberg, who also as a billionaire could channel quite a bit of money private money, his own money, um, into organizations that would support some of these rezonings. Um, but if you look at the overall pattern, you see 
a pattern of downzoning, relatively uh, affluent, already low density, majority white neighborhoods, while upzoning predominantly people of color, already moderately dense, um, working class neighborhoods and industrial neighborhoods in particular. So that's the pattern if you look across those hundreds of rezonings. De Blasio comes in um, and puts forward a program of mandatory inclusionary housing where every time you upzone a neighborhood, there has to be some degree of affordability. Um, and the debate over that was largely about how affordable is the affordable housing or who is it affordable to and how much of the new housing is going to be affordable. And those were important questions, but uh, sometimes lost in that debate was where are these rezonings happening? And up until his last year, every one of these upzonings happened in exactly the same kind of neighborhoods that Bloomberg was upzoning. Majority people of color, fairly low income, already moderately dense neighborhoods, um, rather than the city's uh, transit linked, but still single family majority white homeowner districts. So we saw the same uneven development patterns under progressive de Blasio as we did under Republican Bloomberg. Um, and as you said, the, the results were not staggering in terms of increased affordability to the extent that there were, uh, was um, a gain. I think some of it was in the new affordable housing that was built, but a lot of it was those rent freezes in rent stabilized housing. That was a lifeline to millions of tenants. The housing that was built um, largely left out the poorest New Yorkers. And as a result of that, as a result of policy choices around vouchers and other things, homelessness skyrocketed under both Bloomberg and de Blasio in New York City. I'm struck how um, in your argument about the, you know, wh wh how, how we go forward with respect to these, these, these questions, um, you begin in this um, section of the book, Unmaking the Real Estate State, on the one hand with, to me, what was quite um, surprising and also optimistic was the sense that, you know, many of the tools and policies, practices and tactics that are uh, presently uh, in, in, you know, in, employed in, in planning and development uh, are quite viable with respect to um, Kind of addressing these challenges, but simply require uh, a new political economy, simply in which <laughs> geographically yeah. these things might be reversed, right? right. So, so you know, in part, I, I was struck just by the craft of the argument that you begin with. Well, let's look at the tools that we have, and you know, you reveal the fact that you know um, these tools have most often in a city like New York, both historically and in recent memory, been used to protect you know uh, wealthier and wider neighborhoods from change, and that ultimately that pushes capital into to places that are seen by virtue of their you know, seeming poverty, uh, places that, that that require investment, so-called, and that in fact reversing, you know, using those same tools and policies, but reversing the political economy is really the issue. So, so by the time I was sort of drawn into that argument, you then kind of move to the, the more uh, the more kind of ambitious project of well, what would that political economy look like? What, what, what would be a politics in which those kinds of tools might be used in a different direction or different geography? Um, uh, you, in that section of the book, you refer to um, 
the the people's housing plan uh, as an example. Um, and I thought for for our for our audience, it might be interesting for you to, to rehearse that. So this is a proposal that's a part of an organization uh, that's advocating for continuing to keep public housing public to address homelessness, to offer immediate relief by taking um, um, underutilized or abandoned properties, et cetera. So, so tell us about the People's Housing Plan and how that provides a kind of template for you thinking about this new political economy. So the People's Housing Plan came out of organizing that was going on um, kind of outside the nonprofit uh, world of affordable housing development and advocacy and more in the grassroots organizing um, that had taken place sometimes uh, in opposition to city planning actions, sometimes uh, through tenant organizing projects. And it wasn't necessarily presented as, um, you know, a manifesto and the end all be all, but more a way of thinking about what was possible. And what I really appreciated about it um, as an organizing document, as an organizing tool, was that it took things people were already familiar with and showed how you could go much further with them. So the first plank of it was to end homelessness in New York City. Not to reduce homelessness, not to uh, you know, build more homeless shelters, but to end homelessness in New York City. Um, so they wanted to immediately rehouse all homeless people through both new construction of social housing, public housing, uh, but also taking vacant warehouse properties. There's a tremendous amount of um, unlived in space in New York City. And this is widely known among homeless people who find it uh, incredibly um, disgusting that there is more empty housing in New York City than there are homeless households. Uh, the, the, point, the plan also calls for a citywide moratorium on evictions. What's interesting is, you know, this is my book came out in 2019. This platform was either 2018 or 2019. We did have a citywide, statewide moratorium on evictions during COVID, which was uh, another example of when the state actually does what it can do and what happens. We saw homelessness fall during the worst of the pandemic, not rise, because we ended evictions uh, and we placed homeless people in empty hotels, um, which is a situation similar to this call to uh, put people into warehouse departments. The second point on the platform was universal rent control. Um, we do have a form of rent control called rent stabilization that uh, is in about half of the private rental market in New York City, but the other half is un unrent regulated, um, either because it was taken out of that system or because the housing was built after that system was put into place and it doesn't cover all new construction. Um, after my book came out again, we massively expanded uh, the protections of rent stabilization, but we failed to expand rent stabilization itself within New York City to cover buildings that had been taken out. Um, but this demand was to, uh, to make it universal. And then they say immediately institute a rent freeze and then a phased rollback of rents to 20% of, of tenant income. So at that point, uh, they're creating a crisis. They're saying, this is what tenants can afford to pay. Landlords, figure out how to run the buildings with that much money. We then get to the next point, which is transfer distressed buildings to tenant ownership. This assumes that a lot of landlords are not going to be able to uh, upkeep the buildings, but mostly pay back their debts if tenants are only paying 20% of their income. 
they probably could keep up the buildings, but they certainly couldn't pay back their loans that they took on, assuming ever-rising rents and ever-rising ever property values. So here they say, uh, put the buildings into receivership or take them with eminent domain, and then have the tenants take them over in the form of cooperatives, mutual housing associations, and community land trusts. All three of those are forms that already exist in New York City. I live in a limited equity co-op uh, where the landlords stopped paying their uh, public taxes in the late 70s. The city took it over, uh, paid tenants to fix up the apartments, and had the tenants buy it very cheap under the condition that they could never resell it for much of a profit. Um, that it, It's the entire line of my block that was put into this system. Um, we can do that. We have done that in the past. This uh, demand is saying, okay, we have this tool. Let's really use it. The, the next one is repair and expand high quality public housing. So we have public housing in New York City. We did not tear it down like a lot of other cities did, but we're massively underfunded by the federal government. So this is calling for uh, full funding to repair and enhance and then building again um, with community centers and art spaces and a lot of the things that are undervalued in the private sector. Um, this to me is probably a demand that requires federal action rather than just city action given the amount of money it would take. But still, um, it's saying, yeah, we have public housing, but that public housing is failing because it's underfunded, not because it's public in the first place. And then the last point is democratize development. So basically they want to uh, take the public mechanisms that we have right now for um, approving or denying land use changes and uh, bring them open to the public. Let the people elect um, those who are gonna make those decisions um, and not do the site-by-site -site rezoning, which kind of pits every neighborhood against another for who's gonna take on uh, the, the burdens of new growth and infrastructure, but instead have a citywide and democratic approach. So that was, that was the platform. And I'm not necessarily saying each of those five points is the five points to take, but I think it's a model of how to take what people are already familiar with on the one hand, what people say that they want, and show how you can transition from one to the other. Of course, it would be a revolutionary change to actually implement these things. But what's interesting is a revolutionary change doesn't necessarily uh, encompass tearing down everything we have but rather transforming the social relations so that they work dramatically different. In this section of the book, you also refer to a number of international uh, examples, precedents, comparables. I'm reminded of you know, uh, many um, European cities in the wake of the 0809 financial crisis. Uh, many um, cooperative associations, uh, trade unions, artist groups, community groups uh, came together to form their own, you know, their own housing collectives in, in, precisely in response in this way. Uh, I'm struck in this section of the book also how I think you're careful to frame um, uh, both the people's housing plan proposals, but also other uh, precedents as not simply always being um, the collectivization or state control. There's many of the examples you're pointing to are other forms of ownership, let's say, that are more distributed or more, uh, more democratic. Um, with respect to making planning and development a more democratic process, I think uh, one of the you know particularly important topics, of course, is the current status of public participation. Um, you know, the, we've touched on this just briefly, but I, I wonder, based on your experience, how, how might we think about 
participation processes. So, so on the one hand, of course, we're talking about the failure or perceived failure of the broader progressive project of housing our population from the 20th century, the, the failures of modernism broadly. Uh, and of course, um, you know, many of the reforms that we've seen in the context of the 20th century were meant to respond to that. Um, you know, the idea of um, citizen participation, community engagement, these, these were all, you know, alongside, you know, kind of um, preservation practices and a range of other mechanisms. They were meant to be uh, responding to the failures of the 20th century by and large and top-down planning as a kind of technically imposed, you know, state instrument. Um, but I think it's clear from your account in the book that, you know, uh, you know, as you say, communities have rightly developed a kind of cynicism about these practices based on uh, their long history. At the same moment, what would you have us do in replace of those participation processes uh, that would lend us toward a more democratic planning outcome? Well, let me humbly start with the three words, I don't know. Um, that, that this is one of the hardest, uh, you know, I can, I can much more easily design outcomes than, than processes when it comes to, to the issues that I'm talking about in the book. Um, but but let, let's give it a shot. Uh, so the first thing, two things came to mind in hearing you lay out that, uh, that history in that case. One is the theoretical framework that I use in, in the first full chapter of the book from Richard Fogelsong about the contradictions of uh, planning the capitalist city. And Fogelsong talks about one primary contradiction resulting in another secondary contradiction um, that then kind of define how planning works in the US and, and in other capitalist countries. The first contradiction is the property contradiction that um, when property is privately owned, um, there are conflicts between different types of users that they look to the state to mediate. And there are also demands from those private users of the state for all sorts of infrastructure and interventions to make that property useful. And those the kinds of demands that they want of the state are often in conflict with one another. So uh, the demands that industrial developers make on the state are going to be different than the demands that residential developers make of the state and so on. So then you've got these planners in place to, uh, to figure it all out. Um, and, and I think some argue that, that there's a much more active role of planners than just mediating, but, but let's use this schema for now. As they're mediating it, planners have to deal with the fact that they're not only operating within capitalism, but also within a formal democracy. And uh, the people vote, and the people vote in the people who appoint them to their public planning positions, the mayors uh, and others. And so there has to be a role for the public in mediating these disputes between capitalist interests. And often the role the, the public may want something um, that is antithetic to all forms of, of capital accumulation. And in that case, the planner has to bring in the public enough that they're satisfied and that the system has legitimacy as a public institution, but not enough that they could threaten the very private capital accumulation that undergirds the whole system. So that is the capitalist democracy contradiction. So in Fogelsong's schema, the role of American planners in the capitalist, in a capitalist democracy is to kind of muddle their way through these constant contradictions, property contradiction, capitalist democracy contradiction. So 
yes, we have um, public planning uh, commissions. Yes, we have um, land use review processes, but the public never has enough of a say that they can actually direct the agencies. Uh, they, they often have an advisory role um, and maybe they, through elected officials, can say yes or no to particular projects, but have a very hard time pushing the entire thrust of the system. So that's the first thing that comes to mind in explaining why we have the system that we do, which features a great deal of public participation and a very small amount of public power in the final outcomes. The other thing to think about is the specific history of 20th century modernist planning and the reaction to it in the second half of the 20th century. I think the story that you told is correct of um, kind of authoritarian top-down planning uh, meeting its match in um, public opposition and the systems being reformed to reflect that. Uh, the, the, the classic personifications of this are, are Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs, but there was a Robert Moses and a Jane Jacobs in just about every city in America. It wasn't unique to, to those two figures. Um, and then more recently, we hear a kind of tragic version of this story being told where now um, NIMBY people inspired by the, the systems that uh, were created in, in the light of those um, movements are able to stop all large-scale planning. And now we can't deal with the housing and environmental crises that affect us and we can't do the large-scale actions that we need. I think what's missing from that account though is the role of real estate and other capital in all of these moments. So real estate capital um, severely limited what the modernist planners were able to do in the first half of the 20th century to basically just uh, slum clearance and then construction of new public housing, never more units than were there before. So not creating a public sector that really competed uh, with the private sector, but instead having the public sector pick up the least accumulative elements of the real estate market and creating huge opportunities for uh, private development, be it large-scale suburban development or um, new modernist uh, high-rise projects for higher-income people. So the real estate movement or uh, real estate capital and real estate sector was involved in that whole schema, and they are involved in the reaction to it as well. Um, and it's maybe a different branch of real estate capital, but um, like we talked about before with the support for gentrification as a planning movement um, coming from some elements of, of the real estate state uh, and the planning institutions, but also some elements of capital, uh, the banks that were making out the, the loans to uh, new brownstoners and, and so-called urban homesteaders uh, who were gentrifying some of these neighborhoods um, were totally bought into this system. Um, eventually developers figured out that if uh, the first round of gentrification can clear out the poor from the neighborhoods, they can come in afterward and build up new luxury housing to sell and rent to those affluent people who never would have dreamed of being the first round gentrifiers but are happy to move in after the neighborhood has changed. So I guess I think it's important as we're figuring out why we have the, the systems that we have to look not just at the uh, government and the popular reaction to it, but also uh, how real estate makes money off of either one, um, either one of these systems, and why it is that 
the system has never been such to challenge that. And that's, that's I think, where, where Fogelsong's analysis of the capitalist democracy contradiction comes in. Now that scary question of what the hell do we do about it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out some ideas that are in conflict with one another that are kind of at war within my own head and, and maybe let the listeners decide. So one approach is um, boycott the system. Don't participate in these charades and instead seek to disrupt them. Uh, and I know people who have tried to enact that strategy to greater and lesser success. Sometimes they get ignored because they're not at the table. Sometimes they blow up the whole thing and, and the planners move on to a, a more easy place to uh, bring the next project to. So that's one approach. Another approach is kind of counter planning. Um, they've got their plan, we've got ours. And you know, work with uh, planners who are willing to um, confront power and come up with an alternative plan that is uh, viable so you have to maybe compromise in some ways, but is a strong alternative to the one that's being forced uh, onto people and then forcing the state to, to take it seriously. Um, that's an approach that, for example, the Chinatown Working Group has been taking uh, over the last decade or so in creating an alternative plan, fighting to get it in place, electing people who are committed to, to pushing for it um, and trying to make that happen. Most famous example of that is the Cooper Square uh, district in the Lower East Side, which fought against a large scale urban renewal clearance with its own plan that did involve demolishing uh, some of the worst buildings in their neighborhood, but uh, building first on the vacant lots, moving people out of the worst housing conditions and into the new public housing, then tearing down their housing and doing this sort of checkerboard style where you get to rebuild without displacement. It's not exactly what ended up happening, but uh, they did end up establishing a community land trust that is the most uh, effective one of those in all of New York City. The final model is um, actively participate and try to get the best you can out of it. And that is certainly not the model that I advocate in my book and in my work, but I have to take seriously that there's a lot at stake and there are people who, who say like, I don't have the ability to just, you know, fight this thing to the death and lose. I, I'm pretty sure that something is going to happen here, and I'd rather that it have a little bit of my voice than none. So those are three sort of viable counter strategies for people to think about. Um, I have put the most work into probably the second one, the counter planning one, but I have a full understanding of why people would would go with uh, the first or the third option instead. And just to, you know, um, bring it full circle, I think each of those three um, possible ways forward um, also not imagine that they're mutually exclusive. They imply a different responses from the designing classes, right? By the, the professional planners and, and, and those of us in the, in, in the urban arts, right? And so what might be the, the role of, uh, of kind of planning, uh, the planning profession or, um, you know, uh, the, the, the allied urban arts in, in, in each of those models? How, how, how might planners be engaged in those various roles? Well, um, I talk about various ways that, that it has happened already um, in New York and elsewhere. And maybe that's a, a good way of jumping in. Um, on the sort of throw sand into the gears first option, um, there was a movement called, I think it was the Planning Underground, 
in New York City, which was planners who were actively working against the worst things that their institutions were doing um, and would release anonymous um, you know, op-eds or leak information out that wasn't being made public that showed you know, the true cost of, of some of the worst projects that were going on. Or um, I believe there are examples of basically planners writing out testimony and then having members of the public speak, like voice it on behalf of a public sector worker who was in no position to, to make that testimony themselves. Um, and this goes hand in hand with unionizing also so that uh, those workers can have more of a voice uh, and not fear the retribution of uh, their bosses. So that's one way that uh, active, like public sector planners have worked to stop some of the worst things that their institutions were doing. In terms of the counter planning, um, there there's a large role for um, urban planners, architects, designers, um, and others in the, those allied professions. Um, it's hard to do well. It's hard, it, it takes um, a kind of uh, diminution of ego rather than coming in and saying, have I got a plan for you? Coming in and, and listening to what people want, crafting a proposal, understanding that your first pr proposal will probably be laughed out of the room, working on it again, working with people, um, engaging people in the process. So, you know, if, if one of the first steps of doing community-based plan is, is uh, surveying, um, getting the people who are the activists who are working on this to do the survey themselves. Um, this takes a long time and sometimes communities don't have the time to engage in this, but um, when you're able to, I think that's one of the most productive roles. It, like I said though, uh, the, the designers, the planners have to be um, not pure followers. You know, you're, the, the technical skills that we have and the visions that we bring are, are extremely important, um, but not leaders in the sense that we come with all the ideas fully fleshed out and, and are simply presenting it to a, a willing community. Samuel Stein, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Charles. Pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.